Hello, I'm Mark O'Brien, and you're listening to Transformational Healthcare Leadership, a podcast series from Oxford University's Side Business School, a collection of interviews with leaders from across the globe exploring the five key themes of the school's healthcare leadership program, the personal leadership journey, understanding the evolving environment, effective strategy formation, digital innovation, and improving performance. The COVID-19 pandemic precipitated massive disruption in healthcare. So how are healthcare leaders addressing these challenges? What are they thinking? What personal journey are they on? How did they survey the changing landscape? What strategies have they tried or intend to try to ensure their team, their organisation, their country not only survives, but thrives? In this episode, I interview Natalie Smith, and particularly explore the themes of driving innovation and improving performance. Natalie's career has been grounded in and around technology projects in a range of industries. In her early career, she was a systems and data engineer, implementing technology for large mining, financial service and government organisations. Over the last two years, Natalie has specialised in digital transformation in health and community services. Her roles have included being a partner in Deloitte's risk advisory practice, as well as the chief delivery officer for the State Health Department in Queensland at the forefront of digital health transformation in Australia. She now has a number of significant governance roles in large university and health and community service organisations in Australia. Natalie has recently finished a PhD researching the role of organisational leaders in transformational projects and now advises boards and executives on how to lead digital transformation based on her findings. In particular, I was drawn to her theory of transformational friction, which she outlined in her thesis. I began by welcoming Natalie and asking her to outline the personal journey that inspired her to undertake this research. So Natalie, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mark. I really like what Oxford is doing in this space, so very excited to be a part of it. Thank you. Yes, well, most of my career has been centred around trying to help organisations get better value from their technology investments. And it continues to frustrate me that projects fail, we can't seem to consistently deliver technology projects, and just the waste that comes with the projects that fail, you know, they're eye-watering amounts of money that, that are squandered, but also the missed opportunity to help deliver, for example, better healthcare. And added to that frustration was that we keep doing the same things and expecting a different outcome. So when I was at Deloitte and doing project assurance, probably the main question I was asked was, should we sack the project manager when when it wasn't going as, as planned? So we kept looking to the project methods and tools, accreditation, the project manager, but it sort of felt to me like driving a car and we were only looking at the speedometer and fuel gauge. It told us something, uh, but not everything. So I had some hunches, I had some questions, but not necessarily the answers. So that's what led me to um, take a big pay cut. (laughs) Well, it sounds like from what you said, there were particular projects and experiences that informed your research. So what were the broad themes from those projects and the experiences that you identified? Well, it's probably best to um, explain it with an example and and one that really sort of typified what I was seeing and the the common themes was 
it was a group of government organisations that were embarked on a, a common digital transformation. A significant amount of money, risk writ large, they had immovable deadlines. The stakeholders themselves, the various agencies, weren't renowned for getting on well together. In fact, quite a bit of power play between them. The service provider they'd chosen wasn't renowned for their customer service, yet they had to have it delivered on a particular date. It was high profile and high risk. But they pulled it off. Not only did they pull it off, it was under budget. It won lots of project awards. It went really well. And then that same team, and I was involved at the start of their their next transformation, was quite a different story. It, It dragged on for years. It was way over time and budget. It got the attention of the media for all the wrong reasons. And the difference that I could see was that the first transformation they were excited by, they really wanted to do it. They wanted to be known for it. They turned up, they were at the steering committee meetings. They were making sure that what they were talking about in the meetings was happening outside the meetings. Yet uh, the second one, they were missing in action. They weren't interested in doing it. They didn't have a clear view on what they were doing, certainly no agreement. They delegated it down in the organisation and outsourced some of the key roles to consultants. And while that was sort of a more extreme case of, you know, what I was seeing in other areas that, you know, the role of the board, the executive in turning up when you're undergoing transformational change was critical. And just a really short example is um, the digital health transformation that I was involved with at the end. And it was, you know, the first one and and the most complex and, and risky. And at the end of that, I asked the board chair, you know, how that had changed things for him. And to my surprise, really, he said it changed everything. It changed who I had on the board. It changed who I had as the CEO. He said I went to more morning teas and coffees with staff than a man my age and weight should do. It changed everything. And I compared that to some of the the other health organisations where not even the CEO turned up. You know, it was the CIO that was leading the charge. So that was the common theme that gave me the hunch that drove my research in effect. And then, as I understand, Natalie, your research, you started interviewing CEOs and board members across a range of industries. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so I'm most passionate about uh, digital health and uh, community services, but I knew because I've worked in financial services previously, I knew there were other industries that had transformed and been on this journey much longer than health. So I looked across industries. I wanted to look at non-digital as well to see, you know, what we could learn from other transformation types to inform digital health. And what I was asking, and it was around 50 board members and CEOs, and then I validated what I found with pretty much the same number again. And I got them to compare what they were doing in successful transformations and compare that with what they had done in unsuccessful transformations. And I also had the opportunity, a fairly rare privilege really, to follow a digital health transformation. And what was great about that was it enabled me to look at the same transformation, but from the perspective of organisations that had different boards and executives. So yeah, it was a combination of those things that I was able to um, explore in the PhD. And Natalie, one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you as one of our first contributors to our podcast series is is out of your PhD came this fascinating concept of transformational friction. And as a leader myself, it just immediately gelled with me about, of course. So perhaps you could explain 
what transformational friction is, what, what how you form that theory and how you can see it um, being utilised by leaders to improve the success when they do do major projects. Mm. Yes, it was really interesting, Mark, when I had a look at the common themes coming out and surprisingly common themes coming out of successful transformations and also very common themes coming out of the unsuccessful transformations. Um, So that was a big surprise. I thought given the diversity that there would be more difference, but it was sort of boiling down to four key things in successful transformations. The other surprise to me was that one of the questions I asked at the end was, you know, what surprised you or, you know, what would you do differently knowing what you know now? And several of the executives I talked to said, um, I realised I could have gone faster. I thought, oh, that's curious. And I think as you would know, usually we think of we need to allow longer than we normally have for transformation to occur. That timeline's being pushed out phenomena, hey? Yeah, correct. And, And that, you know, most transformation projects run over time and budgets. So the more I thought about that, the notion of transformation friction started bubbling up. And like you, it's intuitive, isn't it? You think surely it's out there already, but I couldn't find it. There are concepts like, you know, change resistance and inertia, but, you know, what I could see with transformation friction and and what I defined it to be was, you know, the forces at play between the existing organisation and the organisation that's changing and it's those forces that are pulling and pushing each other and that the four activities that I was seeing, you know, what organisational leaders were doing was reducing that friction in successful transformations. So, yeah, I was surprised it didn't already exist. But as you say, I think it's fairly intuitive and, you know, immediately makes sense and, and you can start to apply it within organisations. So you made mention of those four activities. Perhaps you might like to explain those four compelling uh, parts of transformation that you identified. Sure. So... I guess the first key thing was that these were happening throughout the transformation. So it wasn't something that was done at the start. They needed to occur or they were occurring from beginning to end, if indeed transformations ever ever end at the moment. I guess there's a question mark around that. But the four key activities, the first was to have a compelling purpose. And I don't think purpose on its own is any great revelation, but the compelling was what was a real standout. And what was different about this, I guess, to what we see in the literature and and even some of the sort of standard methods is that it was instilling pride in the organisation. And it was really interesting when I went back to validate and saying to some of the, the later participants, you know, I'm seeing this thing called pride. You know, the more pride there is in what the organisation is doing, the better and faster change can go. What do you think of that? And, yeah, resounding commonality in, yes, that is one of the differences and, one of the CEOs of the of one of the big health services I was involved in, he sort of described it as when people aren't proud and when there isn't pride in the organisation, they get stuck on the little things. And whereas when they have pride, they throw a rope around each other and drag each other through the creek. And if there's there's something in the road, you know, they they will move around it. So that that sense of pride in the purpose is really important. The second one was unifying leadership. And again, I think our tendency is to think transformations need to be led by a superhero with a cape on their back, sort of heading off into the sunset and hoping that the organisation follows. That wasn't what I saw. Instead, it was a leadership ecosystem. 
and that the more unified the organisation was across the executive and from the board through the CEO through to the management team, the better and faster change could go. And that wasn't about consensus. It was about constructive conflict, healthy, open debate and conversation, but being able to arrive on a position that everyone could commit to. And I think one of the really interesting um, terms that came out of the first stage of the research was uh, one of the CEOs talked about Chardonnay terrorists. And I think we all, (laughs) even though we mightn't have heard the term, it, it sort of resonates. So the people that nod their heads and appear to be going along with the change but instead are are undermining it behind the scenes. So, again, another part of that unifying leadership being very critical. And conversely, for the transformations that failed, very common theme that it was due to a partly due to a dysfunctional executive team. The third one is navigating paradoxical tensions. And for me, growing up in transformational change, this was my big aha moment. And so we spend a lot of time in transformations, typically thinking about our plans and then risk management against those plans. And risk is to do with uncertainty, yet these tensions are there in every single transformation. So tensions like what needs to stay the same and what needs to change. How do you fly the plane and fix it at the same time? What are the resources you need versus the resources you've got and what what do you do about that? Importantly, what I was seeing, though, was that in successful transformations, there were levers to navigate those tensions. So that was number three. And finally, number four, I called dialogical adapting. And dialogical isn't a commonly used term, but what it was capturing was what I was seeing. And that was the board and executive not just relying on the static reports coming to board meetings, but like that board chair I talked about, getting out to morning teas and coffees getting a sense, you know, from other indicators in the organisation where the pain points were, where there was excitement, where there was innovation and adapting both the course and the pace of change dependent on that feedback. So they're the four activities in a nutshell. So compelling purpose, unifying leadership, the ability to navigate paradox and adaptive monitoring. As you said it, Natalie, it, it just seems so intuitive and and. Um, and I think all of us in leadership can identify projects or major transformational works where the absence of one or more of those has been a major contributor to the project not delivering the value that uh, was expected. But it's interesting, you mentioned financial transformation. What about, you know, you've obviously had experience in a range of transformation type, but is there anything different about digital transformation, do you think? Yes, there was. There were two questions I really grappled with throughout, and had quite a bit of debate with the organisation that I was following and observing. The first question was, "Is digital different?" and the second is, "Is health different to other industries?" And in both cases, the answer was yes, but not for the reasons that we might think. So, what I mean by that, and let's let's take digital as an example. The four activities didn't change for digital, but I do think where I landed was that digital transformations are higher friction than non-digital transformations. And I think that's the case for a few reasons. One of those is that digital is um, what I call highly intertwingled. So there's very tight coupling, for example, between development and operations. So say if you're building a building, you know, you have someone come in and build it, 
and then it's handed over, you cut the ribbon and people use it. That's not the case in digital. There's a flow that goes, you know, it goes into operations, but then updates are needed, changes are needed, etc. So that tighter coupling means we have to think more about partnerships than we do about the product. Similarly, system to system, you have to think about how the digital system interconnects in with others in a way you don't have to think about, say, for a new building on a, on a university campus. So that ups the ante on, you know, what I would consider now levers of that higher friction to reduce it, things like systems architecture. And it's why you hear the term interoperability and why that's so key in uh, digital health transformations. And then you've got the human to tech interface as well. So, yeah, that tighter coupling, I think, leads to to higher friction. Well, Natalie, as I mentioned at the start, you know, COVID-19 has led to a real acceleration of digital innovation across the world. And I'm sure some of it's been good and some of it maybe not as good as it or hasn't delivered the value it's expected. So if you were giving some advice to uh, leaders on how they should be setting the parameters of success or analysing how successful their digital ambitions will be, what advice would you give to them about that measurement of value? Well, just going to COVID-19, and I agree with you, Mark, it really turbocharged our digital transformation agenda. And I think in that are some of the clues. And certainly, I mean, it was <laughs> it was great for me in some ways that it happened while I was doing the research. So I think some of the things that we look at, as I said before, I think we overly emphasise plans and, and risk management registers. And it, it's not to say on their own that they're wrong, but I think what digital transformation proved, and telehealth would be an example, that the technology was there for quite a long time, wasn't it, um, mm. in terms of telehealth. But there wasn't a unified agenda. There wasn't, I mean, for some there was a compelling purpose, but there were very divergent agendas on it. And there were some policy directions and imperatives that had a, a very firm handbrake on telehealth happening. So, you know, that handbrake was released with COVID-19. And I think, you know, in terms of the value, you know, there are a lot of stories about how telehealth has delivered amazing value. I think listening to some of those stories, it gets to that dialogical adapting. But there are also places where it's being abused and misused. Um, so listening to that, learning from the pain points, adapting what we're doing, putting in place the appropriate structures so that it, it can be sustainable. So I think, you know, it's a case in point where it's showing that it's more about having the right people in the room, having the right conversations than it is the plans and, and risk registers, but then truly listening to what's going on and adapting the course to be able to extract the value. Look, I really love that answer, Natalie. As you know, you sit on a digital subcommittee of a board that I uh, have the privilege of sitting on in Australia, and you yourself sit on another healthcare board. I think directors of, of healthcare organisations often struggle with how to apply the financial and project governance over digital transformations, and you alluded to that. I mean, the costs can be massive, as you know, mm. and yet it's very hard, you know, if you don't come from a, a digital background to analyse the value proposition. You know, I think it's often easier to analyse the value proposition from a bricks and mortar or a new piece of technological surgical equipment than it is over a digital project. So have you got any other advice to directors of healthcare companies and also uh, those in the C-suite about navigating the whole area of digital governance? Mm. 
Yes. I think one of the challenges with digital is that it's invisible. And I think with that, it is harder to measure progress. It is hard to know if you're getting what <laughs> what you've been sold. And so I think that's a real challenge in terms of how we govern it. But I think in some ways, we need to change our mindset about how we govern. So, you know, for example, I think particularly in digital health, for the core applications, we really don't have great choice in who the providers are. It really only comes down to one or two, yet we still, you know, a handful really of suppliers, yet we still go through perhaps the process that we go through for building a building. So, you know, the requirements definition and we might do a current state assessment and a market assessment. I think in some ways, and at risk of oversimplifying it, it should be more like we do with our phones. You know, there's only a couple of operating systems on the market really for phones. We just get on with it, choose one of them, and then learn how to work with it. So I think, you know, part of getting the value out of it is being shorter at the front end, getting it visible to people, getting clinical leaders in front of it, working out how they can use it to change the way we deliver healthcare, but spending longer at the tail end, extracting value, transforming the way we do things, et cetera. So I think that's one of the things. And then just in terms of projects generally, and you would know from the board I'm sitting on, you know, I'm making sure, for example, that it's a clinician that's leading uh, ones that are to do with things that are, it's only clinicians that will be able to extract the value. It's not going to be the CIO. And also, you know, a tendency to, I think because we're, we're uncertain when it comes to digital and we, we don't know what to look for, then we tend to overuse consultants. And in doing that, I think, you know, it costs us way more than it should. Yeah. So I think there, there are a couple of the things that we need to look out for. Natalie, that's fantastic. I love that clarity at the start of the project and making sure that you've got alignment and uh, going back to your four principles. I can see how that would flow through into governance as well. Natalie, I've really enjoyed our conversation today and hearing more about your research on transformational friction. Any final messages that you'd like to pass on to those listening to the podcast about how your research could assist them as leaders? Well, I think certainly in Australia, the mantra that's used for corporate governance is noses in, fingers out. And it's a conversation and it's raising a bit of controversy, I guess, my research with that mantra because I guess if I could sum up my research, it's you can't pay someone else to do your exercise and expect to lose weight. And, you know, I think the key thing is that most of our governance practices are developed for a stable organisation and, you know, we've got established sort of power hierarchies and we've got policies and processes defined. We've got our, our silos, our functional silos, who know what they're doing and the touch points defined between them. In transformational change, that's all up for grabs. So the notion which I think has existed to more or less extent is that the board and executives sort of set the strategy and then flick it over the fence for managers to interpret I don't think you can do that with transformational change. By its very nature, it's complex. It's not linear. And so you need to be involved. So going back to the noses in, fingers out, it's not about interfering, but it's about those four things, compelling purpose, unifying leadership, 
navigating paradoxical tensions and dialogically adapting. You need to be paying attention to those all the way through, not flicking it over the fence. So if there's one key message, it's you need to do your own exercise. Well, I think uh, any of us who have tried to lose weight understand that principle very well. (laughs) (laughs) Natalie, what a pleasure. I mean, I I know you as a great values-based leader and, and a terrific thinker, so it's been wonderful having this discussion with you today. I intend to ask all of the contributors to this podcast series the same two questions at the end of each interview. Mm-hmm. The first one I'm going to ask you is, what possibility in the healthcare ecosystem from your position as a leader most excites you as you gaze into your crystal ball for the next 10 years? Oh, great question. And look, it's just such an exciting time to be a part of health and digital. So, But the thing that excites me most is mass customization. And so what I mean by that is a bit like our our phones where you and I might both have an iPhone, but we download different applications depending on our needs and preferences. And so our phones operate entirely differently, even though the underpinning technology is exactly the same. And just the potential for that in terms of delivering healthcare to vulnerable people, people with disabilities in Australia, you know, the tyranny of distance, we've got to regional and remote into how we design and deliver medications is truly exciting because I think a lot of what we've been able to do to date is really a fairly blunt instrument designed for the average and, and suiting <laughs> suiting no one particularly well. So And it should save costs as well. That's exciting. Yeah, it is very exciting, isn't it? Particularly when you see some prototypes or places around the world where that's being actualised, it uh, mm. really does mm. excite you. My second question, as a leader yourself, Natalie, what's the one piece of advice you would give now to your 20 years younger self about becoming a powerful leader? (laughs) I was talking about this question with my daughter because, yes, and I think, you know, when I go back to when I was 20, I was tossing up whether I did health or technology, whether I did medicine or whether I went into technology. And, um, I mean, maybe somewhat bizarrely I chose technology because I fainted (laughs) at the sight of blood and my mother wanted me to do medicine. So I think, you know, in retrospect, and a PhD is a personal journey as well as a research journey, it was the navigating paradoxes. And so what I would say, and what I just said to my 21-year-old daughter was, um, life is paradoxical, organisations are paradoxical, work-life balance is just one of the many paradoxes I think that we need to navigate. And I think at that 20-year-old stage, everything's a bit more black and white. So as a leader, the more I guess I've learned that and grappled with that, I think the better the leader I become. That's very wise advice, Natalie. I think uh, the uh, complexity uh, as you age and as you reflect back on uh, your experiences as a leader, I think there is a tendency to have often underestimated the complexity of of what you've been trying to do. And uh, I think your summary is fantastic. Natalie, it's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you and thank you so much for your time on this Transformational Healthcare Leadership Series. Thanks, Mark. I've really enjoyed it. You have been listening to Transformational Healthcare Leadership, a podcast from Oxford University's Side Business School, where we speak to outstanding healthcare leaders from across the globe who share their insights on healthcare leadership as we navigate the complexity of modern healthcare delivery. And for those interested in furthering their healthcare leadership journey by joining us at Oxford for the executive education offering that I and my colleague, Eleanor Murray, have the privilege of leading at Side Business School, 
You can find details about the Oxford Healthcare Leadership Program in our show notes. We'd love to see you at Oxford. Transformational Healthcare Leadership is produced by Chris Ashmore Media. And if you enjoyed listening, please subscribe to hear further episodes and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.